Thank you for joining us for this episode. Today, we're joined by Dr. Aaron Roof, and we're going to be speaking about the improvement of your patient's comfort by adding astigmatism on the OI show. Thanks again for joining us on this episode. Today, we are joined by Dr. Aaron Roof. How are you today, my friend? I'm good. How are you? I am awesome, and I am super stoked to get to hang out and uh, learn about this topic with you because I've got dozens of questions and uh, I'm I'm really excited about it. Before we get into the topic, I want the few people who don't know who you are to know more about you. So tell us a little bit about what you do, where you live, and uh, anything else you think we should know. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, my name is Erin Roof. I um, am currently the chief of the Cornea and Contact Lens Clinic at um, the Southern California College of Optometry at Marshall B. Ketchum University in um, uh, in Southern California. Um, I'm an assistant professor there, so I teach in the clinic. Um, I see patients there, and I also teach in the contact lens curriculum and in the basic science curriculum at SCCO. Um, before coming here, I um, trained at Ohio State and did a cornea and contact lens fellowship at Ohio State and then stayed there for several years to um, teach. And I uh, completed a PhD in uh, vision science there as well. So before I came out West, I was a Midwest girl, but um, liking life out here on the West coast. What is visual science? Vision science. Well, it's, it's any, all science, all about vision. So that could be about ocular anatomy, physiology, um, studying pathology, ocular disease, optics, physics, all of it. So, um, you know, the study of vision science can can mean a whole lot depending on what your interests are. But you already had a doctorate I did. in visual science. So why did you go get another one? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. Science? Yeah. So I um, like a lot of optometrists, obviously <laughs> I got sorry, my, I don't mean that to be a rude question. No, no. Yeah. I'm just like a, a chronic overachiever, maybe. The, <laughs> my family. Um, yeah. So, you know, after I got my, um, doctor in optometry, or I guess as I was finishing up my OD, I was kind of feeling like, um, just doing patient care. I, I still had some things I wanted to do or some sort of things I was curious about and interested in. And so that's actually why I did the, the two-year fellowship at Ohio state. And that'd be a good this would be a good time to plug that sort of unique fellowship, which um, is, is unique. Yeah, it's a it's a residency essentially, in that you spend half your time um, seeing patients in whatever specialty you're you're assigned to or signed up for, um, but you also spend half of your time doing research and getting a master's degree and and teaching. And so for me, that was a really great opportunity to flex my clinical muscles, but also um, get some experience in research and ultimately that. Um, you know, when I finished that program, I was still had some questions to answer and some, um, some things I was interested in. So that's why, I, um, uh, went forward and, and continued with the PhD, which was probably the best decision I ever made, but that program, the fellowship is really what kind of, um, sort of propelled me into that. So I think it's such a, I think it's a under understood, um, or maybe a misunderstood program. And, and a lot of people just don't know about it. And so, um, it's again, really great opportunity. Yes. And now you're Dr. Doctor, which is even yes. uh, even cooler. 
So now that you have answered all of the questions that you've ever had, because you continue to uh, go and get more education on it, uh, <laughs> you are now teaching all of it. And I think maybe after you finished your doctorate, you decided that maybe you should actually make a lot of money answering the questions from then on. And now you do other research, right? And you're involved in patient care. And so you yeah. still do what you did during your PhD. Yeah. But now you get to do it and make more money, which is awesome. <laughs> Make more money than I did as a PhD student. That's for exactly. sure. <laughs> well, you know, many of us have benefited from the research that you've done. Uh, many people in industry have benefited from the research that you've done. And uh, one of the things that, you know, I've observed you talking about over the years is contact lens discomfort. And, uh, you know, that's a, a really old topic. I mean, you know, when uh, about eight years ago, the contact lens dropout rate was right around 16 to 18%. And with advent of all these new contact lenses that have come out, we've improved that number to 16 to 18%. And uh, we really haven't gone anywhere. And, uh, and I think you have an area that you've looked into and you talk about that maybe, maybe, maybe we need to look a little deeper into, and that is the visual discomfort side of things. Talk a little bit about how this all came about in, in this arena, right? We've talked about, you know, pain and dryness and discomfort, but what about this visual discomfort? Yeah, well, um, I, I completely agree with you. You know, we've, we've had all this, um, you know, expansion in technology and improvement technology and the materials and the types of lenses we have, but com discomfort is still such a huge problem in our wearers. And you know, if you read any of the literature about contact lens discomfort, a lot of the conclusions about why someone might be experiencing discomfort are often inconclusive and, and we don't know. And I think as an, as a young doctor, as I was just starting kind of practicing on my own, especially within a contact lens specialty, I got really, it's, or it is really frustrating to kind of just be sort of randomly throwing solutions at a, at a patient who's complaining of discomfort. And most of the time, our solutions for you, you probably shouldn't throw contact lens solutions at patients. <laughs> yes, I, that's true. I mean, that's why I stick with daily disposables. It helps me avoid that. But. <laughs> um, randomly throwing solutions. Randomly throwing solutions. The ones I'm most displeased with that week. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, you know, I started to think there must be something else here. You know, we always just say, oh, if you're uncomfortable, it's because your eyes are dry um, or the lens is interacting with your ocular surface in a, you know, not ideal way. But um, I started to think about how a lot of symptoms our patients complain of when they're uncomfortable are actually similar to just like general asthenopic symptoms like uh, fatigue, eye strain, um, you know, symptoms that increase at the end of the day, that kind of thing. And um, this actually started when my my uh, uh, graduate advisor, Melissa Bailey said, Hey, why don't we give, I have got this group of patients that are recruited for a dry eye study. Why don't we give them the CISS, which is a, a survey for convergence and sufficiency, which you could argue is sort of a survey that measures visual fatigue um, kind of generally. And we found that these dry eye patients had um, high symptom scores on the dry eye survey, but those scores correlated with the CISS as well, which really shows that symptoms associated with dryness and um, ocular surface issues are very similar to symptoms that people experience when they have um, visual fatigue. And so I've done a lot of work since then looking at, um, you know, how vision influences comfort. And there's also been work by other um, great researchers and colleagues um, in the field looking at how 
um, vision and vision related issues influence contact lens discomfort. So clinically, how we can apply this is, and how we can use some of the evidence that we found is um, thinking about sort of maximally correcting our contact lens wares. Um, a few things that stand out to me when I think about uh, uh, maximizing vision, when I am, am, am fitting contact lenses and addressing discomfort is one, making sure I'm not over-minusing my patients. So making sure that those myopes, especially your moderate to high myopes that often eat up extra minus, um, that you're not, you know, over-serving them when it comes to um, myopic um, prescriptions. Um, because we know if they're if you're if you're overcorrected, that's going to affect your um, you know, accommodative demand and and convergence demand. Um, and considering how much we all focus and read and look up close all day long, over-minusing your patients is just not not the best practice. So anymore. so remind me of this. Uh, I know the answer, but I, I, I'm going to act like I don't, uh, adding more minus, how does that affect convergence? Um, oh, actually must, might've misspoke there. It doesn't directly affect convergence, um, but it will affect, um, your accommodative demand. Um, so, um, so if, when we over minus our, our myopes, they're going to have to accommodate more up close. Generally, we know right. that myopes need to converge more in contact lenses than in glasses. So um, that is just a, a base in effect that the spectacle lens provides for your myopic spectacle and contact lens wears that when they're wearing glasses, they don't have to converge as much. So when you put your minus seven myope in a contact lens, they will have a higher virgins demand than when they're wearing their their glasses. So mm-hmm. that high myope might experience virgins demands in their contact lenses that are more uncomfortable than they would be in their glasses. And they might misinterpret that for, you know, dryness, discomfort. They might just not wear contact lenses as much because they're having to convert. Yeah. So and it's by over minusing them, it's affecting their ACA ratio. And we're substantially making it even more difficult for them, yes. especially because they are challenging themselves with that convergence and they have less of the accommodative uh, ability to help them with that. Exactly. And with the increased near demand that we have compared to way back when, when I went to optometry school, it's even so much more important on that. But Aaron, you know, here's, here's the thing. Uh, when I take a patient and they've got a diopter cylinder, you know, I don't want to correct it. So I just, you know, give them a half a diopter extra minus. Are you telling me that I shouldn't do that? I am telling you that you shouldn't do that. Um, There's actually some really good evidence out there. A great study by um, Stephanie Cox uh, a couple of years ago came out where um, they, um, it was a clinical trial where they compared um, low astigmatism, um, low toric lenses compared to spherical lenses and patients that had like average, like a diopter, maybe a little over diopter or less of astigmatism. And while the vision was the same in both lenses, so the like acuity was essentially the same, what the patient read on the chart, the patient subjectively preferred the toric lens to the spherical lens. So I think that's a good takeaway for us as optometrists. It's really easy to just ca- get caught up in our exam room chart and say, well, they're seeing 2020 with both, but subjectively what patients often prefer is, is very different than what we might expect based on just our exam room chart alone. Um, that but same it's an study, aspheric lens, right? So it, it compensates for all that cylinder. That's I the don't other... think we can say that anymore, David. No, oh, I don't think we can say okay. that. That might've been something, 
you know, 10 or 15 years ago when our, when the toric lenses we had weren't as good as the toric lenses we have now, but you know, our, our resistance to prescribing toric lenses is probably more based on sort of old practices and assumptions we had about older toric technologies and not based on the, the really good lenses that we have now available to us. So we really should be correcting those low astigmats, 75. I mean, I've even had some patients with a half diopter of astigmatism who prefer to have the toric lens over the spherical lens that has the spherical equivalent. So it's really something as a practitioner, you just should be offering. If you see that that patient you have in their manifest refraction and their auto refraction has a diopter, has 0.75 diopters of astigmatism, they can really visually, subjectively, and I would argue comfort-wise, benefit from a toric lens. That same study by Stephanie Cox, they gave those patients the CISS as well and found that patients had improved CISS scores on the with the toric lens compared to the soft spherical lens, indicating that their visual comfort was better with the toric lens. Man, sister, I'm with you. I actually have written a lot of articles about over giving SIL rather than under giving SIL Mm -hmm. and its substantial benefit on patients. And the fact that we do have a lot of old practices because we used to have to wait 20 minutes to correct people with their toric lenses and have to settle. It took forever and it was a big challenge. Exactly. Yep. I mean, I literally just this morning wrote an article about how um, if a toric lens hasn't stabilized within a minute, you usually think it's not any good for the patient because we've become so you know, specific on our toric lenses. But it seems like our criteria for what a toric lens is supposed to do fits for its stability, but we don't go to toric lenses yet. It still hasn't become mainstream like you and I think that it should yep. for all those half to three quarters of a diopter patients. And that I, I, I think, I think what I need to hear from you is what are the things that we would hear our patients complain about if we had undercorrected their cylinder, they still see 2020, right? But what are the things maybe that those patients would complain about that those of us that are in the exam chair every day can be like, okay, I get it. Right. Right. I'm hearing that complaint and, you know, I'm just thinking that the patient needs an ad or needs to stare at their computer less, or what are some things that might be said? Yeah. They might complain of kind of like nonspecific discomfort complaints, um, because again, they're going to experience a type of eye strain that is not like, Oh, I'm blurry. Correct. Yeah. It's not blur, but it's this sort of nonspecific, like, I don't know. I don't love them. Um, to be honest, a lot of times in my practice, I find these toric patients by, you know, just looking at my data and saying, hmm, this person's been in a spherical lens for the last five years, but I'm picking up some sill today. Or I see in the last three years, we've included cylinder in their spectacle prescription, but not in their contact lenses. And that's when I throw in, you know, why don't you try this toric lens, try the toric version. And I've had so many patients come in and come back and say, I wasn't that unhappy with my other lenses, but this was just the extra bump. And in my practice, I've really thought that's a way for me to differentiate myself um, from maybe an online retailer. You know, we're always trying to compete with either, you know, practices mm-hmm. across the street or, or like a, a Hubble or, or an online retailer. They can't see that nuance in my patient's prescription like I can and provide that extra sort of, um, uh, you know, bump in clarity that will enhance their their vision, but also just enhance their, their sort of comfortableness and their lenses. Um, yeah. you mentioned, you mentioned, um, you know, sort of our 
how you were talking about sort of, you know, where we have sort of attitudes about old Torah cleanses. Um, I think we have those same attitudes about um, presbyopic corrections and multifocal lenses as well. We assume um, multifocal technologies that that maybe didn't serve us or our patients well 10 or 15 years ago still aren't going to serve us well today. And I found in my research and in my practice that um, multifocal lenses can be used um, early and often to treat discomfort in our uh, contact lens wearers, both fully presbyopic contact lens wearers and those patients who maybe aren't presbyopic yet or emerging into presbyopia. Um, those same patients that have kind of that general discomfort that I was just describing in those maybe under-corrected astigmats, um, early presbyopes, emerging presbyopes, maybe just 30-somethings who are struggling um, with a lot of near work can benefit from a multifocal a little earlier in life um, or early on in presbyopia than we might practice um, normally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So do you know this number offhand of uh, around about what percentage of the population has astigmatism? Um, about half of our contact lens wearers have a stigma, have enough astigmatism that we could correct it. So, um, very generally, yeah, about 50% of all contact lens wearers have at least 0.75 diopter of sill in at least one eye. And what percentage of contact lens wearers are corrected with it? Only about half of those are corrected. Yeah. 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 So we're only serving about half of our patients and, you know, things like chair time, like it does not take any longer to fit a toric lens than it does a spherical lens. Um, it, it really, and, and parameters, we have parameters for basically any prescription you would want. So, um, it, it actually kind of boggles my mind that more people aren't fitting toric lenses because it, it's better for your practice, you know, from a, a practice management standpoint to, to fit and, um, prescribe toric lenses compared to spherical lenses. And again, that doesn't really take you any more time to do so. Um, so yeah, it really, it, it behooves everyone to fully correct astigmatism. It does behoove them. That's for sure. That's such a great word. Okay. <laughs> Dr. Roof, um, before I let you go, I have to ask you about these weird visual corrections that are on my keratoconus patients after I put scleral lenses on them. Oh boy, change the topic. Them, most of them are coming from the back surface, but they're complaining of these very weird um, visual complaints, kind of like an uncorrected astigmatic patient would be. Um, do we have any science yet and, uh, that is related to this and correlation in un, unprescribed astigmats? Um, you know, like specifically to that, I, I don't know of like a specific, you know, body of work Study. that's no. specifically at that, um, you know, scleral lenses, um, obviously do a great job of correcting, um, refractive error in our, in our scleral lens, whereas they can sometimes, oddly enough, induce higher order aberration. So while they can correct sort of the refractive error, they might, and induce may not be the be better best word there, but maybe alter or change existing higher order aberrations that we know our patients with irregular astigmatism have. Um, and so that could be some of the the sort of funky optics that those scleral lens patients are experiencing. Yeah. Also like fog and halos and, and things in the tear film can contribute to that sort of um, unique Absolutely. visual experience. And, and maybe you can speak to this, you know, taking a corneal GP uh, keratoconic patient and moving them over to a scleral, 
Mm -hmm. uh, carries with it some benefits and consequences visually. Mm -hmm. uh, can you speak to some of that and maybe why um, outside of fogging? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so there's, you know, there's a list of pros and cons why you might choose a corneal lens over a scleral lens for a patient with keratoconus. Um, you know, at SCCO in our practice, we're very um, big proponents of the corneal GP and, and not letting that go by the wayside, you know, sclerals are sort of the hot, the hot topic in the last five, eight, 10 years. Um, but I think a corneal GP is always a good place to start with a patient with keratoconus. Um, generally it's going to be the best sort of oxygen permeability, the best tear exchange. It's easier to handle, um, usually less expensive for a patient. Um, but sometimes our patients progress to a point where a corneal GP either isn't stable on the eye, isn't, um, healthy for the eye. Maybe we're getting areas of touch and that's when a scleral really can come in and take over. It's going to, um, provide a lot of comfort, um, a lot of visual stability, has the ability to vault completely over the cornea. Um, and so we don't have to worry as much, obviously, about bearing and touching and, and you know, exacerbating scarring on the cornea. Um, and scleral lenses can offer a lot of, um, you know, bells and whistles visually on them that we don't have the luxury of having with the corneal GP, things like multifocals, um, some of those higher order aberration corrections, a scleral lens can provide that sometimes a corneal GP, because it moves around, um, because it's not stable on the eye, can't provide. So um, some of the cons to a scleral lens, they're more expensive. They're going to be harder to handle. I think one con, maybe quote unquote con is there's just a lot we don't know about scleral lenses and what their impact is um, physiologically on the eye sort of long-term. I certainly don't think it's inherently negative, but it's an exciting area of research right now to see all the things we're learning about what actually is happening under a scleral lens. So yeah, there's a lot of reasons why you might choose a corneal or a scleral lens. You kind of have to think of all those pros and cons and your unique patient together as well, because um, the, the, all those things influence one another. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Dr. Aruf, that was a fantastic podcast. I learned a lot. I think it was incredible for us uh, talking about uncorrected visual issues that yeah. cause that discomfort that maybe we're just ignoring and thinking about, well, I changed the lens because maybe that's your discomfort, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. So incredible information. Yeah. Don't forget about vision. It's, it's easy sometimes for as optometrists to get caught up in in the disease and the pathology. And I always, it's always good to remember sort of what our foundation is and that's vision. We're, we're better than anybody at correcting vision. So, yes. Yeah. I agree with you, Dr. Doctor. Thank <laughs> you. Absolutely. And thank you thank for you. joining us for this episode of the OI show. Make sure to like, and subscribe and join us again next time for other incredible contents on the OI show. Hi friends, this past December, I was asked to participate at the Ophthalmology Innovation Summit. This coming March 1st, the OIS is hosting the Ophthalmic Innovation Summit at SECO. And since I love what they're doing, I asked them if I might have a discount code for my podcast friends. If you use the discount code OIPODCAST, that's the letters O-I, the word podcast, you'll get $100 off of your registration. Again, that's O-I-P-O-D-C-A-S-T, O-I podcast at checkout.